And for various reasons, I think, as you read this, you'll realise we sort of tread, in, tread on holy ground uh, this morning. I mean, all scripture is, is, is God-breathed and is, and is useful. But in, in Psalm 22, we, we almost get the inner workings of the, of the mind of Christ on the cross. And what could be more, what could be more awesome than that? So let me read it. It says, for the director of music to the tune of the Doe of the Morning, a number of uh, psalms take up that tune, and it calls itself a psalm of David. And it goes like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. To you, they trusted uh, and they were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions, they tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots in my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Or actually, there's really good reason to think as we read that, we could read that verse. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions, from the horns of the wild oxen. You have saved me. Because something changes at that point in the verse. And David goes on, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfil my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. 
all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Let's pray for a minute. Thank you, Father God, that you're with us this morning. Thank you. You're with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we thank you particularly that uh, Jesus, your son, the one who died on the cross as a man is still a man, is yet uh, in ways we don't understand in your great Trinitarian nature with us this morning uh, by the Spirit of Christ. We ask you, Lord, please, please come amongst us and, and, and speak to us, work in our hearts. Different things for, uh, for different people. Encouragement, comfort, rebuke, whatever it is. We're ready, Lord, to bow the knee before our, our holy God and do whatever it is you say to us this morning even as we say that we recognise that our spirit is willing and the body is weak come and strengthen us to do what you say by your spirit we pray in Jesus name Amen I wonder what your favourite work of art is have you got a favourite work of art? Tell me what it is. What, what, would, be, what would be your favourite work of art? Go on. I've got a portrait of all my cats I've ever owned. You've got a portrait of all your cats in your room. Fantastic. <laughs> I've, I've kind of... Um, I've been watching Andrew Marr on the, uh, the great paintings of the world um, on, on Channel 5. I don't know whether you've seen that. Um, and he started with Monet's Water Lilies, uh, which are these vast canvases in the Musée d'Orsay... Uh, sorry, Musée de l'Orangerie. The Orangery in Paris, um, which is kind of one of the few museums of the world that I've actually been to. Um, but it's notoriously hard to define um, art. But somewhere across the series, and I watched three or four, um, he quotes Pablo Picasso's definition that art is the lie that tells the truth. Art is the lie that tells the truth. I don't know whether you, whether you, you can get hold of that. And I think that's quite a good... That's quite a good description of art. So art, you know, particularly a painting, it's a representation of a reality. It is not the reality. That is why it is, in a sense, a lie. Um, but it communicates something to you uh, about that thing more than, just, more than just seeing it in itself and more than just a kind of uh, a prose description of it would tell you. Um, so the painting of the water lilies, it just kind of moves you in a way and it takes you to that place and makes you think of, of serenity and the, and the quality of, uh, of light. And something that you can't explain um, kind of happens. And so it's a kind of lie, if you get that, it tells the truth. And this is true of poetry. Um, and therefore of Psalm 22. Don't... don't don't get me wrong, um, but poetry is, again, a kind of lie. It's putting something in, in, in words which sometimes are not literal, and yet they tell you the truth. 
And I think this is going to be quite helpful in, in helping us understand Psalm 22 this morning. So David uses, if, let's take it just from David's point of view, he uses metaphor. So he says, I am a worm. Well, he's not a worm, is he? So if we were to be brutally logical, it's a, it's a lie. But we know what he means. He's telling us a truth. He's telling us that he feels the, the, that he's the lowest of the low. That he's kind of, people just think of him as dirt. Um, as, as something to be trodden on. Um, and he says, many bulls surround me. Well, you know, because we understand metaphor, that he's not in a field of cows. Okay. Um, feeling, feeling threatened. But he is surrounded by muscular, unpredictable, forceful enemies. So we understand it. David uses a thing we call hyperbole, which is deliberate overstatement. He says, all my bones are, are out of joint. Um, I, I don't think they are. He'd be a kind of pile of something on the floor. But we understand what he means. He, he, he feels completely physically and, and mentally disjointed and, and deranged. So we understand, we understand the meaning. Even through these words which are uh, not literally true, metaphor and, and hyperbole. And one of the features of this psalm is we, we don't know the circumstances in David's life that it comes from, and it's, that there is no obvious episode in David's life that we, that we can fit it into. And I think what has happened here, and I think you, you I, I trust that you see already, you know, you see patently on the, on the top of this that this is describing the experience of Jesus. That's, that's obvious, isn't it? Um, what has happened is David has written poetically um, about his own experience. But under the influence of the, of the spirit of, of prophecy, what he has written comes true. And in some of these cases, literally true in the person of his son, his descendant, and Jesus Christ. So we already had a number of reasons to, to believe that the Psalms speak about Jesus. Um, very briefly, Jesus says um, the Psalms speak about him. Um, do you remember when he met, he met the disciples? Um, a week after he was first risen. Um, this is what I told you, he said. No, it's not. It was actually, uh, sorry, getting the dates wrong. This is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He's using the Psalms as shorthand for the writings, but nevertheless. Jesus says the Psalms speak about him. Peter says that David was a prophet. So I don't know how many of you got to do Psalm 16 in a, in a home group this week. We missed it last week um, because of sports reach. But Peter quotes uh, Psalm 16 and specifically says this, David knew, uh, David was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. You can go back and look that up. If you want the Bible study, I can send it to you. We haven't got time to, to, to pause there. Um, so Jesus says the Psalms speak about himself. Um, Paul, uh, uh, Peter says that David, uh, David was a prophet. Um, the apostles use the Psalms uh, to persuade the Jews about Jesus. So again, Psalm 16, which we didn't get a chance to do. It's partly why I'm filling it in now. Um, Peter, on uh, the day of Pentecost, uses Psalm 16 to... Uh, persuade the Jews that, that Jesus was the risen one, the one whom God didn't let his body see decay. Um, and Paul uses it again in Pisidian Antioch, Antioch in verse 13. 
Today, I think we've got another reason. It's kind of, uh, is that we can see for ourselves. If you didn't think already, if you weren't persuaded by the first, first three, we have a fourth reason, which is this is just so clearly speaking about the experience of Christ um, in prophecy. So we're going to try and get it and feel it and do it. And we're going to apply the method that we've applied all along. We're going to uh, look at it as David wrote it. We're going to look at it in Jesus' experience. Then we're going to um, apply it to ourselves. Um, but obviously we just haven't got time to do all that in all its fullness this morning. So we'll, we'll speed through bits of it and some bits will get left out. But let's just take Jesus out of it for a moment. Look at David thinking about his own experience. He feels totally abandoned by the Lord. And he's not, um, not shy of, of telling God about it, is he? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far? Cry out day and night. Yet, he says, you are enthroned as the Holy One of Israel. The faith, David says, it's, it's bigger than just me and my experience. He says, you are the one Israel praises. He says, the faith is bigger than just me today. Uh, there are thousands and millions of other Christians um, who, are, who are praising you. The faith is bigger than this moment. You are the one my forefathers trusted and you didn't um, let them down. So this pattern happens three times. Did you see that? You noticed that in the first uh, sections of the psalm. David pours out his heart and then he makes assertions about, uh, about God and comes back to talking about God in a different way. So he feels totally abandoned. He feels totally put down. He says, I'm a worm. I'm universally mocked and insulted. And he says, it's not just about me. The Lord is insulted too. Yet, he says, you've caused me to trust you. Uh, even from my mother's breast, even from... Um, the womb, I, I trusted you. So don't be far away, God. I've trusted you before. So you see what David's doing. He, he, feels, he, he feels in great pressure. You've got to feel that, haven't you? Um, and yet he, he's just kind of, um, he's getting this picture off himself, isn't he? And saying, but hang on, hang on a minute. Um, you're still the enthroned one. There is still a, a bunch of other people who, who praise you. If I look back in the past, you're the one uh, we would trust. If I look back just in my own past, I've trusted you and known you to be faithful to me. Goes on to say he's surrounded by powerful enemies. He says, I'm about to be gored and trampled and, and eaten up, basically. And this, is, this has impacted him in, in, in a in a very powerful way. It's impacted him in his body, it's impacted him in his mind, it's impacted him um, in his will. He says, I feel poured out like water. I've got no strength, I've got not even any cohesion to my life. All my bones are out of joint, he says. I'm aching and I'm disorientated and, and my body just doesn't work. He says, my heart is like, is like wax. Says all determination and power of volition has gone from me. And he says, I'm desperately thirsty. I'm desperately thirsty for something. And in fact, I'm, I'm under so much pressure, I'm at death's door. I'm encircled by dogs, by villains. There's no way out. 
they're going to mangle me. And he feels that this is, this is public. This is not like um, some, some, some private anguish. He says, all my, all my bones are on display. I can't imagine, to be honest, I can't, couldn't work out what is David experiencing at this time that he should say, all my bones are on display, I don't know. But he feels like he's, he, he, he feels under such pressure that it, that it feels like being naked. And then he says, they, they, um, they divide my clothes and cast lots of my garment. What does he mean? I, I don't really know, except that he, he just feels like he's been stripped. He's just been stripped down to, to nothing. And then there's a but, there's another but, there's three yets and a but. But you, Lord, but you, Lord, don't be far from me. Come quickly. Deliver me, rescue me from my enemies. And then I think it's right, I think, uh, that we should read this verse. And uh, tenses in Hebrew are sometimes a bit vague, but I think, it's, I think it's right that we read this verse. It says, rescue me from the mouth of the lions, from the horns of the, horns of the wild oxen. You have saved me. In the midst of this prayer that he's praying, suddenly the rescue of God, the rescue of God arrives. The answer has come. You, and you have. You've saved me. Come quickly, come quickly, come quickly. Ah, you have. And what was kind of lonely struggling becomes corporate praise. Um, he's heard me. He's the theme of our praise. I'm just going to speed through this bit because I want to move on. And then praise turns to prophecy at the end. All the ends of the earth um, will remember. All the families of nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs um, to the Lord. So at the end he turns to praise. And then he turns to a bit which is kind of prophecy I think. Which is just seeing that the Lord is not only enthroned. But he will rule. And in a very Psalm 2 kind of way. Posterity will serve him. Those who die. Even those who die. Um, who cannot keep themselves alive, will end up worshipping the Lord. Because I want to get on to this. I want us to, to just think for a moment. How, how would Jesus have read this? Now, here's a question. Can you put yourself in, in, in Jesus as a young man? After that occasion where he'd been, he'd been found in the temple, he'd been lost, and he'd been found in the temple, um, that, that point where he's just coming into, into Jewish adult, adulthood, say... Um, and Jesus maybe read this psalm or heard this psalm or read it at home what would he have thought? what would he have thought? must come a point where it becomes clear I think it must come a point in his life if it's not clear at that point where it's clear that this is this is for him and this is where he's going we can't do this all in detail, but let's pick up the obvious points from the psalm and see how they work out in, in Jesus' life. And I want you in your mind's eye to go there. <clears throat> Not just trying to get it, we're trying to feel it so that we do it. Jesus takes up verse 1 on, on the cross. Matthew says, from noon, this is at the crucifixion, uh, from noon until about 3 in the afternoon, <clears throat> darkness came over all the land, and about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, 
lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's stunning, isn't it? So Jesus picks up these words and, and says them um, while, he is, while he is nailed um, to a cross. And Jesus, you see, he knew what he was saying. These words do, in a sense, express his, his experience. But I think, actually, he's, he's deliberately taking up these words on the cross for people like you and me who would otherwise be God-forsaken. I think Jesus' wrestling in prayer was actually resolved in, Gethsem- in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do, Father, do I really have to do this? Is, is there another way? Can I, can I go another way? No. So I think on the cross... What happens is he is um, he's taking the punishment that is due to you um, and, and crying out these words. These words that would have been yours if you today hadn't already trusted Christ. So on the cross, he, he cries out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Because he must know, in this experience of Jesus, of, of, of pain and taking the punishment from God, he must know, yet at the same time, that, that the Lord is enthroned, as, as the psalmist says, because of his relationship with the, with, with the Father, he must know, even as he suffers. And then the irony is that the rulers of the people pick up verses 7 and 8. You think they would have known better. So... Uh, Two rebels were crucified with him. Those who passed by hurled insults at him. You are going to destroy the temple, build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Listen to this. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. If he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. So he's despised by the people. He is a worm in that moment and and, and not a man. Scorned by everyone. um, Despised by the people. Despised to the extent that they say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And yet, in that moment, he is the one that the Lord brought out of the womb and brought out of the womb in a very special way. He is the one, he is the only one who has, has trusted God perfectly all his life from his mother's breast. In fact, he's the only person who can really say verses 9 and 10. From birth I was cast on you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. So even as they insult him he knows that he is the perfect truster he has been perfectly obedient to the father um, he's bringing that to the cross so that can be credited to you 
um, this morning. But knowing, even that he, even that he is, even as he is nailed, he, he is knowing that um, he's the perfectly, perfectly obedient son of his father, and the Lord will vindicate him. In verses 12 to 14, Jesus is poured out in front of his enemies. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. When the soldiers came to Jesus, found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water, his heart, very literally, quite possibly, would have ruptured under the, under the pressure of lack of oxygen buildup of carbon dioxide. His heart would have just beat until it burst. All his bones are, are out of joint. I find this hard to talk about. I read, I read an article on the, the physiology of what happens at crucifixion um, in, in the week. And so um, on the cross, his, his, his shoulders would be dislocated. Uh, his elbows, his elbows would, be, would be dislocated. His, his, bones are, um, his bones are out of joint. In verse 15, he's, he's thirsty. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, uh, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. He's dehydrated. He's probably not drunk for 15 hours or more. Knowing that everything had been finished so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. They soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of it. Hesoplan lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He read that he was pierced. He's pierced by crucifixion. His hands and feet are, are, are pierced. Pierce my hands and my feet. That's just implicit with the crucifixion. And then in verse 18, isn't this amazing? They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my, gar- for my garments. When the soldiers uh, crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, uh, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, the squad of four, you remember, with the undergarment remaining, it was seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. It says they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. <coughs> and, and in verse 20, he says, deliver me from the sword, my, my precious life, my, my precious life from the power of the dogs. And precious life is, is, is like, it's a, it's a particular word which means kind of like the life, the life of the only son. Like the life of the only son, like, like when um, Abraham takes Isaac. 
of Mount Moriah, or, or Jephthah has an only daughter. You can read that tragic story for yourself. He asks that this life of the only son be, uh, be spared. And this is, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Spare my life, rescue me. And then suddenly he is. When did that happen? Sunday morning. Suddenly, he's been the third day in the tomb. He, he's rescued. God, God answers that prayer. And then the, the rest of the psalm becomes words on, on Jesus' lips. But we haven't got time to look at it. But I want us to read it in Christ. Hebrews tells us, I haven't got time to explain this. But Hebrews tells us that this, this Jesus who goes to the cross is prepared to call all those who trust him brothers and sisters. So Jesus this morning is, is prepared to call you brother, sister, um, on, on the basis of the cross. So Hebrews says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, and uh, Hebrews quotes, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And that's a quote. It's a quote from Psalm 22. So Hebrews sees these words here in the psalm uh, on the lips of of Jesus. I will declare your name to my people. Or literally, that's how the NIVs translated it. Uh, The word is, I will declare your name to my brothers. But brothers is a specific word for for a blood relation. So this morning... This verse 22 in the psalm, I will declare uh, your name. So this is Jesus says, I will declare God's name to, to my brothers. And that's all of you. We can use brothers and sisters, but it's a word that, that means a blood relation. Because of all that's gone before uh, that Jesus has done for you on, on the cross. Does that make sense? Because of verses 1 to 21, what Jesus does on the cross, he is prepared, should you trust in that, to call you brother or or sister this morning. And so he had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in in service to God. He might make atonement for the sins of the people. And because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother and sister this morning. And he became human so that he might represent you before the Father and bring your prayers to his Father. That's what it says here, he was to be a faithful high priest. He became human and went to that cross that we've just read about so he might atone for you. 
I pay for your sins, that's what Hebrews says. And he went to the cross so that he might understand what it's like to be a human being tempted by sin. Isn't that amazing? So as a brother or sister of Christ, you can expect the same pattern of life as Jesus. He calls us, doesn't he, to take up our cross and, and to follow him. <coughs> so the pattern of your life is going to be suffering before glory. Okay, if you're a Christian, this morning the pattern of your life is suffering before glory. On a big scale, okay, on the big scale, yes, you have to work your way through through this life before going to glory. But also on a micro scale. Not much glory is, is gained in, in the Christian walk without suffering first. And one of the reassurances is as a brother or sister, you can know that Jesus experienced it before you. And so how do, we ta- how do we take hold of this and, and use it for ourselves? Well, there's going to come a point where, you, where you're going to feel God forsaken. And the reassuring is Jesus experienced that uh, before you did. And when you're God forsaken, you can bring your true feelings to the Lord. If David did it, you can do it. And you can be assured that the Lord is all those throne, on the throne. And all those things that David says, you can be assured of too. And I think you, you need to understand that the, the, there's going to be a moment, isn't it, where you, you feel God forsaken and, and you, you feel, I'm, I'm on my own. I'm on my own. And, and, and David says, well, hang on a minute, the Lord is enthroned. You're not on your own. Uh, he's the one Israel praises. There's a bunch of other Christians um, and if you're a minority in this country, there are masses of them in, in Brazil and, and in China. Uh, our ancestors trusted in the same Lord. There's, there's a whole heap of Christians um, who, who've gone before us. It's not all about you. Tim Chester says that they have a, uh, it's a kind of saying in their church, which is, it's not all about you. Um, which I think it kind of like some four-year-old came up and said to him at the door one day and he kind of felt, okay, yeah, it applies to me as well. Get terribly turned in, I think, when we feel um, God-forsaken. We're going to be despised. If Jesus, if Jesus our older brother, was, was despised, then how can we younger brothers and sisters of Christ... Uh, expect not to, not to feel it. And when you when you put down, when you put down for being a Christian, you have to take courage. Uh, take um, I was going to say pleasure. Maybe yeah, maybe that's right. Take pleasure in the fact that you're being like your older brother, being like your big brother. And in that moment, this obedience that Jesus had from from conception and birth. Um, right the way through to death is, is credited to you. Why does that matter? Because it's in those moments where you feel despised that you're going to let him down. You're going to let him down. You're going to be mealy-mouthed and you're going to just not speak in situations where you should have spoken. And it's situations like those where you need to know that um, Christ's perfect righteousness 
has been credited to you by God. It's not our performance that gains us access to the throne of God. It's the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And there's times when you're going to feel threatened or times when you just feel totally destroyed. And we remember that Jesus is, was not destroyed. And at the end of the day, it's Jesus' enemies that are defeated. So I've just got one application for you today. We've seen that the poetry of David has prophesied the truth of the Messiah. It's prophesied the true experience of Christ on the cross. So the thing I want you to do is to turn your God-forsakenness to prayer. You need to you need to get that feeling out. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say to you. That that feeling of, of, of God-forsakenness. If if there is a if there is a portion of of feeling, let's say you feel. God forsaken, God has let you down. Or you're feeling despised. um, Or you're feeling destroyed. um, And you don't bring it to God. What happens? You've got a little bit of that reserved somewhere. You've got a little bit of that feeling reserved somewhere. And that's not going to do you any good. It's going to fester. It's going to fester and it's going to undermine you. And you think, "I, I can't take this to God. This is... <clears throat> this is too raw or too rude but the danger is you reserve it over here and you've got something raw or rude which you've reserved which is going to fester away so whatever that thing is if David can speak like this David the man after God's own heart can speak like this and Jesus can repeat them on the cross then I want to encourage you you've got to speak to God like this you have to speak to the Lord like this. You have to get to the bottom of those things that, that are in your heart. Otherwise, they're, they're over here somewhere. They haven't gone away. And you take them with these reassurances that the Lord is on the throne, is bigger than you. Um, that Jesus' righteousness is, is, is credited to you. And you press it out. You cry it out. And you cry it out un- until it becomes praise. You turn your God-forsakenness to prayer until you find that Jesus has taken your God-forsakenness. Your ultimate, your, the, the God-forsakenness that comes of sin and he's taking it to the cross and keep pressing it through until it turns to praise. Might be a long journey. Not suggesting you might get through that in an afternoon or any particular quiet time. Might be a long journey, but you keep pressing that through because praise is where it needs to end up. Praise is where everything is heading, you realize. Praise is where, praise is where we're going. going to a new creation filled with the glory of God and and praise for it.
And we heard those words, didn't we? Saying, it is finished. Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. All that is needed um, for your righteousness with God, all that is needed for your salvation, it is finished. It is done. It is completed. It, 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 is, it is achieved. And the result of that is that we can, we can say with the psalmist, he has done it. Uh, the new creation. We can say it is finished. We live in this salvation time. There will come a point where we will say he has done it. Everything is new. And all that is of sin and all that is sin will be removed from this world. And will have received its just punishment. And we will say he has done it. And we will live in that whole new world. Which is all the Lord's. And all of it glories him. So let's stop and pray out. Lord, we don't really know what to say when we see Christ on the cross. Crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Except to bow the knee and say, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Lord, we hardly dare look at this psalm and, and imagine what Jesus went through. But we know it was for us and we know it, it is a measure of your love for us. And so I simply ask that, that we, the brothers, the younger brothers and sisters of Jesus, uh, Father God, you may uh, give us courage to, to bring to you through Christ those places where we feel forsaken and find you in it. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>